Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast, where we bring an independent eye in interviewing the targets of SPAC transactions and their SPAC partners. For better or worse, fighting fires is big business. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week my colleague Marlena Haddad and I will be speaking with Tim Sheehy, founder and CEO of Bridger Aerospace. Bridger operates a fleet of firefighting airplanes and support vehicles in the western United States, and it closed a combination with Jack Creek Investment Corporation on January 25th. Tim explains how this age-old business is built on steady government contracts, but its needs and sophistication are growing, and why its SPAC merger gives Bridger some unique opportunities for consolidation in a space that has been structurally resistant to such changes. Take a listen. So Tim, you've had quite the career. Can you just walk us through a little bit in terms of how you got from you know, the Navy SEALs to Ascent Vision and now on to Bridger? What was that journey? Yeah, it's definitely not been a planned trajectory. Things uh, in life happen sometimes for reasons we'll never fully understand. But uh, yeah, being a Navy SEAL team leader was was something I, I always wanted to do. Uh, my wife was a Marine officer, so we were in the military together. We met at the Naval Academy. And I had grown up as a pilot, so uh, I, I got my pilot's license uh, actually before I got my driver's license. So was actually, I should say, I sold a, a plane as a student pilot before I got my driver's license. So uh, flying has been in my blood since I was a kid. And then uh, when I went in the military, I obviously ended up in the SEAL teams as a SEAL team officer and team leader. And one of the tasks uh, of a ground force commander is to coordinate aircraft with ground teams. So, you know, when the SEAL team's on a target or a range of platoon or a special forces team or whatever unit you're a part of in the special operations community, one of the important roles of a ground team leader is to coordinate the air support that you have, whether it's surveillance, drones, or close air support with your ground team to attain maximum effect on target. So that's preserving lives and maximum mission effectiveness. So I was able to experience a lot of that overseas, Iraq, Afghanistan, elsewhere, and really became, I wouldn't say quite obsessed, but uh, you know, really interested in, in how optimizing that capability could save uh, and protect the lives of, of my team, uh, protect the lives of civilians around our targets and, and create more effective mission outcomes. So uh, I ended up getting wounded and injured uh, while in service, so I was discharged and decided that I was going to take that capability of air, ground, surveillance, and integration and try to uh, make a business out of it, applying it to other tasks outside the military. And that's how we got into wildfire. We actually bought our first plane as surplus from NOAA, National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. And we designed a very rudimentary camera system to put in the plane and created Bridger Aerospace. One plane you know, a couple of founders, uh, all veteran founders there at the beginning. My brother, uh, who was not a veteran, but was uh, was my older brother and was always a mentor of mine, helped me from the business perspective, not to screw everything up. And uh, Bridger was born with one plane and a camera. We ended up spotting cattle uh, as our first revenue, uh, $200 to, to look for lost cows on a large ranch nearby with our infrared camera. Uh, we didn't find any. Um, but in the process of doing that, we met the local forest service office manager and he said, listen, the type of aircraft you have on your infrared camera could be very useful uh, in the wildland firefight. Have you ever considered a flying wildfire? And I said, listen, if you're paying the bills, I'm flying because I'm broke at this point. So you, you point me where uh, and that's where we're going. So that's how we got into fire and immediately fell in love with the mission. It's such a critical mission for the Western states. And in that process, the camera system we developed, we realized uh, we developed it in conjunction with an Australian company down under called UAV Vision, who we ended up acquiring and were great partners with. And we, we realized that product, although it was a critical part of our service, could be a product for us to sell on its own as well. 
And then we spun that after about a year and a half out into its own company called Ascent Vision AVT. That company scaled quickly as well. And, and, and for a while, it was just a brand under the Bridger umbrella. But then we actually severed the companies in about 2017. And I was CEO of both for a while there. And, and Ascent Vision became fairly quickly adopted as, as a defense contractor supplying imaging systems and defense systems to the Marine Corps, the Air Force, and others. And I uh, was kind of riding two horses at once, CEO of both companies. And that was certainly a busy time. And as you said, we eventually exited Ascent Vision, and, and that allowed me to once again focus entirely on Bridger. And, and as you stated, uh, Bridger has been quite the journey as well. And we've been really excited to bridge, build Bridger out from being a, a boutique aerial surveillance provider now into one of the, the, most, uh, the largest and most capable aerial firefighting companies in the world. Yeah, and I'm really interested in how you scaled Bridger. I mean, as you said, you you had a, quite a lot going on for a period of time with the camera side as well. But just, you know, looking at building out the firefighting business itself, were you, were you kind of just growing one plane at a time, one contract at a time? How did that process all roll? No, it's a great question. And obviously, when you're from the outside looking in and from the finish line, or maybe the finish line is not the right answer, but from the 50-yard line looking back, it can always seem like there was some kind of very precise plan put together. But, you know, as they say in war, you know, no plan survives the first shot of battle. And I think we had a plan when we started Bridger. And and just like any mission we'd complete overseas, normally that uh, that plan uh, will change, evolve, and the outcome normally will bear no resemblance to what the plan was in the beginning, other than hopefully success. So with Bridger, all I knew was this capability that I'd seen and experienced and worked with overseas had value. And I knew that that value could be applied and appreciated outside of, of where I saw it. So it took us time to mine that value and really figure out where the product market fit was, where the service fit, who the real customer was going to be. But once we found that, I think once we hit that vein and we realized that that vertical in the industry and that niche market that required more and better capability, you know, we just started to double down and drill further. And, and early on, it was just reinvesting profits and revenue. Just, you know, we weren't pulling out much salary. We weren't distributing profits. We were just reinvesting and growing and growing. And really where the inflection point changed is after we built largely our air attack fleet. And what that means in aerial firefighting is you've got aircraft that drop water or retardant on fires. Then you've got aircraft overhead that help to coordinate all the other aircraft, kind of like a flying command post. And that's called air attack. So we started out in that air attack fire mapping mission realm which is generally smaller aircraft, things like Cessna, King Arrows, Twin Commanders, Kodiaks, Pilatuses. And those aircraft fly in circles high above the fire and, and coordinate all the other aircraft and the ground teams on that fire. And that was our core mission when we began infrared fire mapping, air attack, and some UAV operations. But we saw that there was a, a pretty significant gap in the aerial fire suppression realm. And that is the aircraft that actually drop water and retardant on the fire. And specifically, in direct attack, initial attack, uh, water scooping aircraft, the super scoopers, which of course are our flagship now. So when we decided to move into that realm, those aircraft are $30 million a piece. And that's, that's not counting hangars and support and staff. That's just buying the plane itself. Uh, it was going to be a very significant capital investment. So that's when we realized, all right, if this inflection point in Bridger, which is circa 2018, is going to happen, we're going to have to rethink how this company is structured in our financing because this is a this is a complete step change for the business and that's when we uh structured our fantastic partnership with blackstone that really has brought us uh, into the current era of bridger of course leading to our recent uh, ipo yeah and just going off of that can you talk a bit more about your fleet 
The aircrafts you use seem like a mix of new and old technology. Uh, what does Bridger have at its disposal now and how have those capabilities changed over time? So uh, I think your question is almost a perfect encapsulation of the industry, which is, you know, new and old. And I think um, fighting fire is obviously it's an, it's an ancient threat. We're, we're not uh, we're not Google. We're not Facebook, Twitter. You know, we're not in the digital realm. We're fighting ancient problems here, which is, you know, Western communities in the in the United States. And of course, global communities are, are now threatened by wildfires in a more year round and aggressive manner than they ever have before. You know, our fleet composition, I think, reflects the, 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 the nature of that, of that threat, which is it's an age-old threat that requires, in many cases, old-school solutions. But it's also, there's a lot of new technology at our disposal now for us to combat that threat, manage that threat, and protect people much better. And, and again, I think you see that our fleet is a microcosm of that. You've got some aircraft, like our twin commander fleet, which we are now retiring, uh, you know, bit by bit which are legacy aircraft. You know, they were designed in the 50s and 60s, and most of them were produced in the 60s and 70s. Uh, they're good planes, but again, they're reaching into life, and we're transitioning that fleet to a modernized fleet of PC-12s and Dyer Kodiaks, which are part of the, the, the next generation of single-engine turbine aircraft. You look at our sensor capabilities, you know, that's as cutting edge as it gets. Our software, our fire track software, our ability to push real-time fire imagery out via app to citizens and firefighters in real time is, is uh, unmatched. Our sensor capability from Overwatch Imaging that we've worked uh, closely with them to create and field uh, is, of course, also cutting edge. <clears throat> now you look at the super scoopers, where, quite frankly, they're kind of like the AK-47 of aerial firefighting planes. They were designed decades ago, but they were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to fight fire. They don't haul Amazon packages. They don't haul passengers on charter. They just fight fire, and they're really good at it. They're the safest firefighting plane uh, ever designed. Uh, never been a, uh, a mechanical or airframe-induced crash. They're incredibly rugged. They're the most efficient, cost-effective, and safe aero firefighting platform out there. And tragically, their their production was halted You know, about a decade ago because Bombardier, during the Great Recession, started to restructure their company. And they, um, you know, they shut down a division of the company that that produced these, and so they kind of went away for a while, uh, which was too bad. And we were really proud to partner with uh, the OEM, which at the time was called Viking, to to relaunch, you know, a limited production uh, of a converted capability, uh, which is the CL four fifteen EAF, which is the model we have. So it is a, as you might have pointed out, a legacy airframe as far as uh, its design. But uh, at the same time, it, it's it's a design that that is tried and true. It's very safe and it works very well. When when mesh with some of our modern technology, uh, the effects on target are really incredible. Right. And so I'm interested to hear how drones will play a role in your operations moving forward. And how much do satellites play into what you do? So, you know, satellites are a really interesting question because I think they have a tremendously bright future in wildfire mitigation. Right now, you know, we don't do, Bridger does not own and operate any satellites. You know, McAndrew and I and many of our team, we've been regularly looking into integrating satellite data into our fire software. I think we absolutely will here uh, at some point in the not too distant future. Again, a lot of it is cost. Thanks to Elon Musk and a lot of others, everything in space is getting cheaper, but still very expensive. And you know, you have to remember that wildfire costs have, have increased dramatically in the past decade. Some of it's due to you know the increased acreage and, and aggressive behavior of fires. Some of it's due to the fact that we have a lot more people living in fire-prone areas. Some of it's due to you know the insurance industry and some massive losses, you know, causing more more uh, financial impacts of the fires. But for a number of reasons, the cost of wildfire suppression has has grown incredibly in the past uh, decade or so. There are budget considerations around 
you know, how we manage these things and anything related to, to space and satellites, of course, is, is still still pretty expensive. But be that as it may, um, I'm a firm believer that that integrating satellite imagery and data is going to be a key part of future wildland fire data intelligence, and we intend to be a part of that. Uh, as far as UAS, UAS have had for a, almost a decade now, they've kind of been on and off in and out of the fire industry. Uh, we actually were the first company that was contracted to fly a large fixed wing UAS over wildfires in 2018. And, and we continue to be involved in that service uh, today as a, as a UAS contractor for the U.S. Department of Interior. But, you know, the, the wholesale adoption of UAS uh, is still a ways off, uh, which I think is unfortunate because, uh, you know, the, the, the DOD has shown and, and demonstrated that integration of fixed wing uh, UAS surveillance is a force multiplier for teams on the ground. So I, I think it is important for uh, U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Department of Interior, and, and other uh, governments who are, who are mobilizing large fleets for firefighting to invest more in UAS capability. Uh, unfortunately, it's just not quite a reality yet. But but we do own and operate UAS as part of the Bridger fleet. And, um, you know, we definitely intend to, to invest in that more going forward. Great. And looking at your flagship planes, the Super Scoopers, let's look at your presentation that showed that you can you buy them at about $32 million a pop and you can turn 6 to $11 million a year in adjusted EBITDA per plane once they're operational. But as you mentioned, you know, there's only so many being produced. And it's just, so just sort of to kind of fill out that picture a little bit more, what are some of the limitations on that in terms of, you know, the capacity that you can bring in and, and the geography that you can cover with each plane and, and you know, operational mm -hmm. hours and all that? Yeah, well, I mean, geographically related, our contracts are, are national right now. We are going to be starting expanding international here in 23 and into 24. But uh, just for, for clarity's sake, right now, we are just a U.S. company. We've always been a, only a U.S.-focused company, and we have been up through this year. But we hope to, to push international. You know, one advantage of fixed-wing fire aircraft over rotor wing, I mean, there's a number of differences. One's not better than the other. That they, they each are critical components to the wildfire ecosystem. And like a carpenter, you know, you got a lot of tools in the toolbox. You can't just show up with a bag of hammers. You got to have a you got a hammer and a screwdriver and a wrench and a and a power drill and et cetera, et cetera. So, but one advantage fixed wing have um, you know over rotor wing is their ability to move long distances relatively quickly. So, for example, last year. We had all four of our super scoopers at that point in Alaska, fighting fires in Alaska, and then fairly quickly they were redirected down to Nevada, and of course had to fly you know thousands of miles you know across Canada and the country to go to Nevada and, and fight a fire there, and then pretty quickly a couple of days later we moved then up to Montana. So they're quite mobile and able to cover geography relatively quickly. You know, as far as production, again, the production of super scoopers has been since Bombardier closed the line. It's it's been a little bit of, of a challenge, of course, right in the middle of that production line. COVID hit, which you know shut down factories worldwide and started to kink aviation supply chains the world over. So you know, we'll see where their production ends up planning out at. I think for the time being, it's hard to say exactly where the is going to end up with their production. They've advertised sometimes you know two planes a year, sometimes less, sometimes more. So it's going to be a while, uh, it's safe to say, until a lot of super scoopers are being built and put into the market, probably close to a decade before production could ever return to, to where Bombardier was at peak production back in the late 90s. Interesting. And can you get into a little bit about how, how your contracts typically work, you know, in terms of their structure and length and, and how much opportunity do you mm -hmm. have to, you know, potentially layer in new services or new revenue into those contracts with each client? Yeah, I mean, the contracts are generally federal 
U.S. Forest Service, U.S. Department of Interior, uh, a lot of state governments contract too. But at the end of the day, the lion's share uh, of wildfire spending comes out of our U.S. federal budget. That is oftentimes pulled out of what's called suppression funds, which is kind of like, and not exactly like this, but it's kind of like FEMA hurricane funds, where it's a big pot of money that just sits there and it's ready to be deployed in the event fires burn, which of course, fires burn every year and they have for you know centuries. So how the contracts work is really you're put on what's probably more accurately called, you know, a roster. And those contracts that we have are five to 10 year contracts for each aircraft. And once you're placed into that contract framework, most of the contracts are usage-based, you know, where you'll have a guaranteed number of days. And normally that those day numbers will go anywhere from 90 to 180, sometimes 200 plus days a year. And that's where they'll say these number of days a year, we're going to contract your aircraft to be on the deck in this location available to launch to fight fire. And that's normally the fixed portion of the contract. And that'll come from budgeted money out of the preparedness budget that the federal agencies are given by Congress. And then you, where the variability is inserted is that is that flight time because we're paid by the day and by the hour. To be honest, you know, although there's some variability there, when you kind of look at historicals for, for planes, you know, whether it's a busy season or a slow season, there's really not any structural variability. It, it, it's fairly, it's more like turbulence. It's, it kind of stays within a you know 15% band of usage because at the end of the day, fires burn every year. The government's going to pay to fight those fires kind of no matter how severe they are. So the usage ends up being fairly, fairly predictable, you know, year over year. But contracts are, are long-term. Uh, the customer is, uh, they pay their bills, it's the U.S. government. And um, it's a really good relationship that we have with our customer, which is really based around a common mission where, you know, we're supporting U.S. Forest Service, U.S. DOI firefighters on the ground who are battling these blazes and protecting people's homes. And our job is really to provide the air support for them so they can be as safe and protected as, as they can be on the ground. Got it. And then Bridger also has a consumer side in the subscriptions to its FireTrack software. How is the rollout of that progressing? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting uh, business pivot we took. Really, it, it was, uh, we were gathering a lot of fire data and imagery, mapping fires, you know, building fire line maps. And we really started to, to come into focus on the fact that there was a huge gap of information for people who lived out West. And anyone who's listening now, or if, you know, any of you guys are from any of the Western states, it's kind of the same script every time. A fire starts near your home, near your ranch or farm, wherever you are, you're camping, you're hiking in the mountains. And it's kind of this old school, like rumor mill of sorts of, oh, there's a fire. It's, you know, it's 12 miles away. It's on the ridge. It's coming. And, you know, normally it's this hodgepodge of information from text groups to Facebook, to Twitter, to phone calls, to emergency Amber Alert type texts, to sirens in town. And you kind of have to have this personally built mosaic of data that you have to put together from friends, family, the internet, local news, you're Googling, you know, fire nearby. And, and everyone's trying to figure out what's actually going on. And the reality is nobody really knows because there isn't a centralized repository of fire data that's meant to educate a populace, whether it's citizens or first responders, early on about where a fire is, where it's going, what's going on about the incident, what you should be doing about it, i.e. evacuating, sheltering in place, or if you're a first responder, you know, get ready and join your team and go. So uh, creating fire track for us was really a vision to try to centralize that information, especially early in an incident, put it together with our industry-leading imagery and fire mapping capability, and then provide it in an app interface that is easy to use, uh, intuitive, uh, and, and very scalable so that we can we can add new features and integrate with other providers in the field. So we rolled it out last year for the first time. 
we're super pleased with with the rollout. I think we ended up having close to 20,000 users by year end. And we're starting, you know, beta launches into some uh, certain customers, I should say agency customers, so that we could look at enterprise level subscriptions with those customers. So we've been really pleased so far. We've got some great plans uh, this year, 23 and 24 are really going to be years where we're starting to, to partner up with, with uh, some agency-wide users and, and software platforms that are already adopted at the agency level for kind of internal enterprise data management and getting more exposure there to that side of the business. So we have experience building a technology-based product business, you know, through our time building Ascent Vision. And, you know, we think this is a, a, a great way for us to, to pivot that expertise and, and do it again in this realm. And ideally, and most importantly, help a lot of people in the process. And do you plan on deepening those data services? And do you think it will take some marketing spend to reach the full market of households in fire-prone areas? We hope to spread access to as many data providers as we can and as many channels to market as we can. So it's certainly not going to be like a vertically protected kind of market access point, you know, a la, a la Apple. You know, we really want to try to be collaborative with others and make sure that this information is accessible through as many channels as possible. Great. And so just moving over to the deal side of things, you know, there aren't a lot of listed companies like Bridger Aerospace. So how did you come to the conclusion that a public listing would be beneficial? And how did you land on SPACs as being the, the path to get there? Yeah, I mean, we certainly get that question a lot, given the SPAC performance here of, of the last several months. So it's, um, you know, it's an interesting time to, of course, try to go public. It's an interesting time to, to hit the marketplace, as you can see, just with all the activity going on. So it, it's an interesting time uh, to have done what we did. Um, but the reality is, we're taking a long-term view for the business. Um, coming out of a SPAC in January of 2023, we knew it was going to be uh, getting beat up in the marketplace. And you can never time everything perfectly down to the month of the day, but knowing what was right for the business over the next five years, this is a route we wanted to take. And that is number one, uh, most importantly, allowing uh, our team to partake in the success of our business by by giving them uh, equity in the business so that they could be rewarded for the critical job that they're doing for the country and for our communities it was a big motivator. Number two, what was giving the the enterprise, the ability to raise growth capital as we go forward. What we've seen from our customers, from our investors is the world wants more Bridger. Uh, they like what we're providing, uh, how we're helping to innovate and push aero firefighting forward in the next generation is being received very, very well. So growing the business privately is, is certainly possible, but growing in the public market gives us a lot more leverage to pull as we look at consolidating with uh, other companies. There's a lot of companies that are multi-generation family owned that are, are now considering perhaps it's time to, time to move on. And then acquiring additional airframes and, and moving international. Uh, this gives us so many more paths and currencies to grow with that uh, it was the right answer for the business over the long term. Yeah, and you mentioned it that uh, you know your, your deal was announced in a much easier market than it was closed in when it came to SPACs and <laughs> yeah. just public companies in general. But I guess just you know what are you what are some of your reflections on on that process in terms of I mean are you satisfied with how things turned out in terms of what you were expecting in terms of the proceeds and just also you know being able to get the exposure with investors and perhaps a different class of investors through the process. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing that's important to remember is is um, the aero firefighting industry exists within the, the small business regulated part of, of the federal contracting system. So you have to be a small business to fight fires. That's just how the USDA and the USDOI have decided that our industry will be treated. And for the most part, that puts an employee cap. Some contracts are different. Some Maybe it's 800 employees. Sometimes it's 2,000 employees. Sometimes it's 40 million in revenue. Sometimes it's 8 million in revenue. 
but largely for our industry, it's employee cap. So sometimes when you have, you can't have a private equity fund come in and buy, roll up a bunch of companies in aero firefighting because that violates the small business regulation set aside. So another piece of this is, is being able to consolidate and grow within the confines of that small business ring fence. So the SPAC outcome was, was as expected. Obviously, we, we had you know a lot of redemptions, which is to be expected in, in this marketplace. And that was fully planned. We really pre-funded the business prior to the SPAC with our capital. So we didn't have an acute need for any of the capital. We don't need it to run the business. We don't need it to grow organically. So there's going to be some transformative M&A transactions that we're going to try to do over the next year or two. We'll be funding those, uh, obviously, and, and having to do you know some level of fundraising for that. But there's no capital needed for the business to operate and grow. You know, we came out of the SPAC with, with plenty of cash on the balance sheet to run the business for years on end, to be honest, and probably in perpetuity. But if we decide to do any really transformative acquisitions that'll truly change, you know, the fundamental size of the business, then we'll have to do some fundraising. But, you know, th that's typical of any company in our position. Right. So what would those deals be valued based on the size target company's fleet or other metrics? You know, as we said earlier, that's certainly one of the motivations for this is, is giving us the currency uh, to complete some of those, uh, that industry consolidation, which we feel is overdue. There's some great companies in our industry, really well-run companies with great management teams. And, and some of them have ownership teams that, you know, are also great, but they're also saying, hey, we're ready to, we're ready to walk out of this. And, and as I, as I uh, mentioned earlier, with the small business set-aside issues, they can't sell. They can't, I mean, they can sell, but it's hard for them to sell. Their buyer universe is relatively small because, um, you know, they can't do a roll-up to a PE fund and, and they can't sell to a strategic like Lockheed Martin or Raytheon. So oftentimes if, if a family has a business and they're somewhat limited in their exit options, um, this is this is a, a path that we can lay out that that's attractive for them. So we see a lot of opportunity for M&A. Ultimately, I'm an entrepreneur. Um, you know, I fly our water bombers. I'm a pilot on the front line. I love my business. So you know, I'm not the type of guy that, that wants to just grow for the sake of growing and hoover up everything we can. That's not our strategy at all. I think our strategy is there are key capabilities out there that enhance the mission and enhance what the what can protect the firefighter on the ground. So we're going to be very selective in our M&A. Clearly, valuations are going to be on a case-by-case -case basis because, you know, obviously we have to strike a deal with each seller uh, independently. But you know, I would suspect most of those valuations would would be uh, would be very creative to us. We'll generally be getting them at a lower multiple, largely because you know we have a diversified contract base, we have a diversified asset base, and we have a growth profile. You know, obviously historically, you know, we started in 2015, and and ever since then, you know, we've gone from a million, three million, thirteen million, thirty-seven, forty-seven, and on our way to you know, hundred this year. So we have a growth profile that a few other companies have in the industry and, and a fleet youthfulness as far as our aircraft and our technology that others don't have. So I think generally the valuation will be uh, very favorable to us, but of course that depends on, on cutting the deal uh, with each seller. And so you briefly touched upon this earlier when talking about expansion, but are you seeing any international demand for your services? And would you consider diversifying into other kinds of disaster response? You know, I'll start at the end, go forward. I don't view us diversifying into other kind of disaster response anytime soon. We're really diversifying into anything else anytime soon. I'm a big believer in focus. I think a lot of companies diversify their way into mediocrity and, and quickly try to do too many things at once. You know, we're an aero firefighting company. And uh, our technology, our sensors, our team, our fleet is built around that. And, and, and that mission is really important to us. So there may be a time where we apply our capabilities elsewhere. But uh, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be focused on, on fire. And I think as, as we can all see in the headlines, uh, there's plenty of need for that uh, globally. So I think we'll be busy enough for a while. 
Uh, and then in your question on international, we, we get constant uh, inquiries about going international. Uh, to this day, we have not yet gone international anywhere, both either with our fleet or through any sort of M&A footprint creation. So we certainly plan to, we certainly want to, we have, we've had advanced discussions. And I think other than Antarctica, I can honestly say every single continent on the world, every single one, we've had very advanced discussions about demand for our capabilities. I think you'll start seeing us, uh, that's part of the reason again for this transaction is giving us the ability to start expanding internationally. So uh, hopefully 23 and, and 24 and 25 will be those years where, where we start achieving that. Definitely. And so following SPAC deals, we see a lot of exciting new technologies coming down the pike, like EV toll planes. Do you see any of those making an impact in your business? To be honest, I think 10 years ago, everyone said we were going to all be riding in self-driving cars in five years. You know, we're still not there. And I think, you know, being uh, ABT was very heavily involved in the drone industry. About 10 years ago, everyone said that drones were going to be delivering your pizza and dropping off your, you know, new roll of toilet paper and mowing your lawn and everything else. And here we are still not happening. So I'm a firm believer and innovator in new technology. But at the same time, I'm also a realist that it really does take a long time you know, for technology to become operationally accretive. And I think, you know, I use the comparison also often with my staff. I don't know if any of you guys know when the first video teleconferencing phone was ever, ever made. How do you guys know off the top of your head when it was? <laughs> yeah, 1962 at the World's Fair, you know, it was called the, the, the Bell Picture Phone. And, uh, you know, the Bell Picture Phone was launched in 1962 and nobody bought it because nobody wanted to talk on the phone and look at somebody at the same time. So it went away and no one ever thought of video conferencing until like 2008. And all of a sudden, you know, this new invention called Skype, FaceTime, Zoom was this amazing innovation that nobody had thought of before. In reality, it had been thought of a long time ago, it just hadn't yet caught on. So long answer to a short question, which is, uh, I think, of course, EV tall, drone technology, all that stuff uh, will certainly play a role in firefighting. But I think it's it, it's a long ways away. It's not going to be next year. It's not going to be five years. I think it'll be 10 plus years before that technology has a fundamental impact on how we fight these fires. And for millions of people, correction, for billions of people with a B around the world, wildfires are, are really an existential threat to their homes, to their farms, to their existence. And, you know, they need solutions now that work today. And, and that's what we're providing. Obviously, you know, climate change, ESG, woke this, woke that, whatever people want to talk about, opinions vary. But the reality is that a lot of companies are trading on their green bona fides. They're saying, hey, we're green, we're climate neutral, we're climate this. And the reality is very few of them actually are. They're either peddling a technology that might be green in a decade or, or they're selling vaporware. And I think uh, we're a company that is actually out there fighting climate change related issues. And, and when we're dropping water on fire, we are sequestering carbon. You know, that's just a fact. We, we are keeping, you know, carbon in the earth and we're protecting, you know, those habitats that are being incinerated by wildfire that are carbon sinks, you know, uh, forests that, that are critical to, to our to the lungs of the world. And those, those fires destroy those lungs. So we're there protecting that. Not only are we sequestering carbon as we do it, we're protecting the carbon sink going forward. So, and oh, well, by the way, we're doing so with revenue and with profit. And I think a lot of the companies that are marketing themselves in that space now either are not actually green or they may be green, but they're certainly not generating revenue or they're certainly not generating profit. So I think we're in a unique position where we have a strong growth business with good assets underneath strong revenue growth, strong margins. And at the same time, we're doing a really important mission that's good for the people and good for the earth.